So over the last several weeks, we've seen that our views on sex and gender depend on background beliefs that we bring to the discussion. And these background beliefs have to do with three primary issues, identity, freedom, and romance. And our views on these matters are not shaped by reasoned arguments. They're shaped instead by stories, the stories we love, the stories we are immersed in. And so what happens is our background beliefs exist within us at a pre-articulate level. We take them in with the air we breathe. The things that shape us the most deeply when it comes to sex and gender, it's sort of like toxic elements in a stream that a fish draws in just by swimming in the stream. It happens not because the fish is choosing to draw these things in, but that's just what it means to live in that environment. I wish I could have found a better illustration than toxic elements because not everything in the stories that our society is telling about sex, about love, about freedom and identity is, is bad. There's lots good. But it comes into us in that same way. It comes into us just by virtue of the fact that we're breathing this air, that we're living in this community, we're living in this culture. This is the reason that we started the entire series the way we did. Before we ever got around to the complicated issues of, that are being raised by the trans community or that are being raised by other, as, other people within the LGBTQ community, before we've ever gotten to any of those complicated issues, we've started further back. We've spent three weeks basically trying to see air, trying to see the air we're breathing. Now it's time, though, in this series of teachings to shift. And we're going to shift our attention from the stories that are being told in our culture. And by our culture, I mean both Christians and non-Christians, people in the church, people not in the church, Christian schools and public schools. The stories being told in our shared culture, we're going to shift from looking at those stories. We're going to shift to the story that God tells. So my goal for tonight is to help us to begin to see sexuality and gender from God's perspective. I've been trying to show it from our culture's perspective. Now, the way that we're going to do that is we're going to turn our attention from the stories being told about identity, freedom, and love. We're going to turn our attention from those stories to the Bible. Now, somebody at this point will probably say, wait a minute, it's not that simple. The Bible was written by humans. So we need to be careful if we presume that when we open the Bible, we're getting God's perspective. And yes, it's true enough to say that humans wrote the Bible. However, if you simply make the move from saying humans wrote the Bible to saying, therefore, the Bible is inadequate, 
as if you've exposed some secret that the church has been hiding, some deficiency about the Bible that we've been ashamed of. Um, I just want to say the humanity of the Bible does not give us the right to patronize it. And a lot of people make that move. Because it was written by humans, therefore, we can patronize it. The Bible is God's chosen means for telling the truth about the world. Scripture is the record of the world that God has authorized. God has set Scripture apart from all other writings and all of our experiences and all of our science. It's different. It's different than every other writing. It's different than your experiences and mine. And it's different than science. Just like God set apart a particular race and a particular member of that race for the salvation of the world. In the same way, he set apart particular writers to give us a definite and decisive testimony to who he is and what he's done. So just like we speak of the sinlessness of the human being, Jesus Christ, we can speak of the perfection of Holy Scripture. Now, some people will counter this by shifting the argument from a critique of the Bible to a critique of our interpretation of the Bible. So what some people say is it was written by humans. And I've just said, yeah, but God chose those humans to write the authorized account. Some people will say, okay, got that. At the end of the day, it kind of goes like this. A lot of different people have interpreted this book to mean a lot of different things. Take any passage of scripture and you'll find sincere Christians who hold one view of the Bible and a similar number of equally devout followers of Jesus who hold an opposing view. And so the claim that's being made is that there isn't really a trustworthy, single, overarching teaching of scripture on sexuality and gender. And this gets tricky. So, on the one hand, we've said, look, the Bible was written by humans, and yet God chose those humans to write an authorized account of what's true about him and the world. So then we shifted and said, yeah, but when people read it, they make mistakes or they disagree. So we really can't know what that authorized account is. So let's think about that for just a moment. On the one hand, there have been varieties of local law and custom and permission within Christian culture with respect to sexuality and gender over the past two millennia. However, the basic lines of discussion have not been different. They have been stable, and they point in a relatively stable direction. The history of the church, the tradition of the church, until 40 years ago was consistent. It has been clear and it's been consistent when it comes to sexuality and gender. So when people make this argument, yeah, but people disagree, just know the disagreement on the sexuality and gender stuff is relatively a new thing. Now we're going to take that serious, but still we need to know that it's basically within the last 40 years in the West. Now, to put it bluntly, 
most Christians, at most times, in most places, have believed the same thing about sex, sexuality, and gender. Just remember, if you're less than 40 years old, you live in a moment that's for a 40-year moment out of a 2,000-year history of Christianity that really stretches back 2,000 years before that in the Judaic tradition. So you live in a 40-year moment out of a 4,000-year consistency. We're still going to take the 40-year moment seriously, but at least let's be honest about it, okay? Now, over the course of the history of the church across racial, ethnic, historical, and cultural lines, when you let everybody vote, when you're really democratic, and you let white people and brown people, you let rich people and poor people, you let Western people, living people, and dead people, when you are truly egalitarian, and you let the whole tradition of the church come and talk about this, over the course of the history of the church, across all these racial, ethnic, historical, cultural lines, there has been a consensus about human sexuality and gender. And this is across all the major expressions of the church, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox. Now, on the other hand, for the last 40 years, in the West, a minority position within the global church has seriously called into question the church's historical position regarding sexuality and gender. And in fact, here in the West, most scholars who have written books about homosexuality have concluded in the last 40 years the Bible does not condemn consensual, monogamous, same-sex relations. Most of the books written on this issue by scholars in the last 40 years in the West have taken a different position than the previous 3,900, I'm trying to subtract 40 here, from in 60 years, okay? So what are we to do with that? What do you do in a moment like that? Has the church gotten this wrong? After all, for many years, some in the church stood on the wrong side of the question of slavery. Many Christians held the Bible in one hand and a whip in the other hand. Is this another one of those moments? Christians have stood on the wrong side of science at times. The famous Christian astronomer Galileo was excommunicated and imprisoned for trying to overturn the church's traditional belief that the sun revolves around the earth. Yet we're thankful that Galileo had the nerve to question that belief. Is this another one of those moments? It is an undisputed fact that we all have biases and presuppositions that we bring to Scripture. At the end of the day, David is going to read the Bible with all of his experiences living in Africa coming through, right? And Janelle's going to read the Bible with all of her experiences growing up Catholic, being a female, being married to such an astonishing... You can fill in the blank there. (laughs) 
There is no way for a human to develop a God's eye point of view. Because we believe there is one of those beings in the world. And it's not you, right? Only God has a God's eye perspective. It is impossible to become purely objective. It's just not possible. Even if I get into your shoes, it's still me in your shoes. Right? Okay. So, we all have biases and presuppositions. But we also have the ability as humans to communicate adequately. If it wasn't possible, we all wouldn't have showed up here at the same time. If communication was impossible and it was always so subjective that you can't know what was really meant, then we couldn't have built this building. The plans couldn't have gone from the architect to the builders, right? Communication works. If it didn't work, <laughs> car crashes on the roads, right? Um, communication. We have the ability, in other words, to identify our assumptions and to invite people to challenge those assumptions and to consider the strengths and weaknesses of alternative interpretations and to prayerfully and communally interpret the Bible in a responsible and humble manner, always being open to the possibility that we could be wrong. Look, I love the Bible. I really do. I love the Bible more than I love prayer. Now, some of you, you like prayer more than you love the Bible. Like, I'm just telling you, this is the way God made me. From the youngest child, I love Scripture. I did a bachelor's degree in English, in English literature and the Bible. I did a master's degree in Bible with a focus on languages. I did half of a doctorate on it. Then I shifted over and did a, a whole Ph.D. focused on seven verses in Ecclesiastes and philosophical. I love Scripture. I've given my education to it because I just love it. My, when my family and I does the Ignatian examine at the end of the day, oftentimes my best part of my best day in any given week was when my door was closed and I was studying scripture. I love the Bible. I can say with honesty, like the psalmist, oh, how I love your word. I absolutely cherish it. For me, it's a refuge. It's a rock. It's a lamp. It's a light. And yet I know that this Bible that I love so much has been wielded like a club to bludgeon people. I know that some of the pages of this Bible are dripping with the blood of our gay and lesbian and trans siblings. Countless LGBTQ believers have found themselves struggling under the weight of burdens that no Christian has ever been asked by God to bear. Burdens given to our gay siblings, not by Christ, not by the Bible, but by stigma and prejudice and discrimination. Sometimes out of just reckless ignorance and sometimes out of good old-fashioned hate. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual youth contemplate suicide three times more than their heterosexual peers. Of all teen suicides in the United States, between 2013 and 2015, 25% were LGBTQ teenagers. Way disproportionate to the number 
of teenagers who are LGBTQ. Of all the homeless in the United States, 40% of the homeless in the U.S. are LGBTQ. 3 to 6% of the U.S. population is LGBTQ. LGBTQ people are more likely to be target of hate crimes than any other minority group. More than Jewish people in America, more than Muslims in America, and significantly higher rates than African Americans and black people in America. The LGBTQ community is the single highest rate of hate crimes of any minority community in the United States. And so as we turn our attention from culture to scripture, let's do it with fear and trembling. Let us be so very careful. And yet, let's not lose our nerve. The Bible is the true story of the whole world, and it is authoritative for all of life today. This is a basic belief of Christianity. The authority of the Bible is an essential component of the Christian faith. Without a belief in the authority of Scripture, and not just the belief in the supreme authority of Scripture, but the belief of in, but the practice of it, without the authority of Scripture, we do not have Christianity. We have something else. We have another religion. We might have the sound and fury, the trappings of Christianity, but it's just a shell game. Without the authority of Scripture, Christianity is transformed into another religion. And so with fear and trembling, with humility and courage, we're going to turn for the next several weeks to seek a biblically shaped imagination, one that's trained by scripture-shaped instincts. We're seeking the Christian view of God, sex, and human flourishing. And the Christian view of God, sex, and human flourishing comes from scripture. And part of what I'm saying is that when it comes to the truth about sexuality and gender, experience is important. And it is an authority. But it is not the supreme authority. Scripture is the supreme authority. We have to listen to our LGBTQ friends and neighbors and loved ones. We have to. But what we hear from them and what we hear from ourselves with regard to sexuality and gender, it, it, it's got to yield to Scripture. We are creatures. God is the creator. And so to have a good, true, and beautiful view, to have a truly a better story, the proper starting point is not our experiences, but it is God and the great story of his dealings with men and women whom he loves so much that he would send his own son to die for you. We started this series of teachings with culture, not so that we could build a Christian view from culture. We started this series with culture in order to unmask our presuppositions. Remember, that was my point. We all come with presuppositions, but it is possible to become aware of your presuppositions. And so that's why we spent the first part of the whole lecture series trying to see the air we breathe, trying to unmask the presuppositions so that we can recognize our perspective as we listen for God's voice on this subject. When it comes to sex, the Bible is where we turn to find the truth. Now, that's really hard for us. It's really, really hard 
to say the best way to know right from wrong is not your instinct, but the Bible. And the reason that's hard for us is because at this moment in time, every single person in this room is a child of the romantic movement. I'm talking about romanticism. The widespread posture that began in England and France in the 18th century reached its culmination in Germany in the latter part of the 18th century and the first part of the, 20, of the 19th century. And it really took hold of society at large through poetry and the novels of people like Goethe, William Blake, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Emerson, Shelley, Byron, Victor Hugo, Jane, Jane Austen, Henry David Thoreau, Walt Whitman. And look, I've talked about some of my favorite novelists and poets. There's one person I just named that I read their poetry more than anybody else. And I love and I love to read poetry. This is the air we breathe today. And we've got to learn to recognize it because you see, in romanticism, the most important reality is the inner reality. It's intuition. The way a Christian woman in our church who's in her dotage says to a younger Christian woman in our church, honey, what do you really want to do in life? That's straight up romanticism. That's a thing. That question doesn't come from pure observation of what matters. It comes from being programmed by Jane Austen and Wordsworth and Shelley and all the other romantic poets and novelists. Even if you never read them yourself, even if your family is all Fahrenheit 451 burning books and stuff all the time. <laughs> this is the air we breathe. The hero in the romantic movement is built around the fundamental insight that it's the inner life that matters. The hero is the rebel against tradition. The hero is the subverter of institutions. The hero is the one who seeks authenticity and sincerity. With romanticism, our secular age has come to place the greatest value on experience, relationships, inner insight, innate desires, moral intuitions. Speak your truth. Live your truth. And so morality is a personal choice, a matter of individual decision. Everybody is entitled to their own opinion. Don't judge anyone else on moral matters. Don't let yourself be judged. And so largely from the influence of romanticism, we've come to see that the problem with society is not immoral people. The problem with society is the people who make moral judgments about people. Don't be a hater. That's the big problem with society. Even the church will follow a liar and a hater. So long as this inner thing, this authentic thing is coming out. To push your own moral views is to do violence, to dominate, to control others. It's a kind of pathology that violates other people's dignity and rights. And yet Christianity is very different from that. 
In Christianity, we learn that morality comes from outside of us. God has spoken to us from outside of us. That's the claim of Christianity. And we are not left to ourselves. We don't have to figure it all out by ourselves. Now, I'm dwelling on this point because it is one of the serious sticking points. The traditional Christian conviction is that Scripture is our primary text. And therefore, we try to interpret our life and align our lives, to its, our lives to its truth. But our secular age, with its culture of authenticity, has reversed this dynamic. Within the modern mindset, our lives and personal experiences are the primary text. And we bring scripture into accordance with our experiences and our desires. And as a result, in too many churches and among too many Christians... The biblical teaching on sexuality has been chastised and reinterpreted. And so, I'm about at the end of the introduction. Don't worry, it doesn't indicate the length of the whole thing. But I just want to say, as Christians, we have got to become skeptical of the four primary sources of authority in our romantic age. We've got to turn skepticism onto the four primary secular sources of authority. First of all, we have to become skeptical of our moral intuitions. Remember, we spent three weeks seeing how the stories our society tells in such remarkable ways give us a script that lulls us into believing what seems to make sense to us is just self-evidently the truth. It's a pure insight. We have got to grow skeptical of the idea that there is such a thing as a pure insight. It's been scripted. Secondly, when Christians say the Bible is the ultimate source of authority, we're elevating the scriptures above our relationships. Even the relationships with people we love. That the scriptures or a higher source of authority than the experience of even ourselves and people we love. And so we must be skeptical of the insights we get on sexuality and gender from our relationships. I'm not saying throw them out the door. I'm just saying don't assume that they're pure or somehow more authoritative. Third, recognizing the Bible as the supreme authority and and as a supreme source for moral guidance. This means that we need to also be skeptical of our own deep desires. Our own feelings and attractions. They must be subject to scripture. We must allow scripture to come alongside our deep desires and attractions And to help us interpret them. Finally, fourth, we need to learn to submit our wishes to Scripture. Our wishes, the thing we wish to be true, what I imagine should be true, what I hope will be true, even that must be yielded interpreted, filtered by Scripture. 
Do you see, part of what I'm saying is that we do not know God reliably until we meet God in the Bible. And we do not know if what we think about sexuality and gender is true until we let Scripture help us think about it. Now, for the rest of this series, we're going to turn from the stories our secular age is telling about sexuality and gender to the story that God tells. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. And, and we haven't needed our Bibles for the last several weeks because we're looking at the scriptures of culture, but we're looking at the scriptures of the church for the next five weeks. So please bring your Bible in the, in the weeks ahead. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is in a debate with the Pharisees about divorce. Matthew chapter 19. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wife. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, is it better not to marry? But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, this is a foundational text for what Jesus thinks about sex and gender. He's asked about divorce, but notice what he does. Twice in his answer, he quotes or appeals to the Old Testament. In verse 4, Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, he quotes from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Okay. And then in verse 5, he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus, when he's asked a tricky and complicated, and to be quite honest, um, John the Baptist had just gotten his head chopped off because he registered his view on divorce. Because the king had just married his brother's divorced wife. So this was a politically loaded question. This would be sort of like in 2016 saying, so do you think we should build a wall on the border or not? That was a politically loaded question, right? This is a politically loaded question, and it's dangerous, and Jesus' life is on the line. And in response to this really tricky question, he appeals to the story of creation. Why does he do this? Because when it came to the tricky moral question about divorce, Jesus considered God's original creation of humans to be normative. 
that what Jesus, what God intended in creation for male and female relationship, Jesus saw that as normative for his day. He operates with the conviction that the created order expressed in Genesis 1 through 2 is a guide for the moral order. All right, so that's different. That's different than saying, well, I feel or my experience has been. He said, in the creation, how was this stuff set up? Because if I want to know what's morally right and wrong, I get that from the created order. Another important way that Jesus' words deal with this whole subject is he's showing that we cannot know whether a thing is good or bad or right or wrong unless we know its original purpose. Now, look, this is so important for us to see here. Let me, let me explain what I mean by talking about cooking for a minute. The British philosopher Roger Scruton wrote, a book entitled Sexual Desire. And in the first few pages, he has this amazing analogy. He compares English butchers with French butchers. He says that in butchery, quote, an object is divided. So think about somebody cutting up a cow, right, Uh, for beef. An object is divided sometimes according to its nature and sometimes in defiance of its nature. The French butcher, for example, Scruton, the Englishman says, prompted by a native French respect for the fruits of the earth, endeavors to separate each natural texture and flavor from its competitors, detaching a complete fillet from the bone, fat, kidney, and skin that encase it. He divides nature more nearly at the joints than does his English colleague. In contrast, and now I'm quoting at this point, just in case you think I'm prejudiced, The English butcher, motivated by a zealous disdain for the corpse before him. And also a disdain for the man who's going to buy it from him and eat it. Chops the creature savagely into rough-hewn blocks, having little more than a tradition of fair play to guide him. An English joint may consist of a scrap of dorsal muscle, a piece of backbone, a fragment of kidney, some skin and marrow, a few hairs, and the indelible mark with which Farmer Jones once branded his lamb. (laughs) A friend of mine pointed this passage from Scruton out to me. His name is Matthew Mason. He's a Brit. He lives in Salisbury, England. He's moved. but And he said that He hated to even bring this up because as a matter of integrity, he's made a point in life to never speak well of the French. (laughs) But Matthew said, Aubrey, in all fairness, there's a reason French cuisine is famous and English cuisine is not. (laughs) When I lived in England and was studying um, there, my mentor was this wonderful scholar by the name of um, Craig Bartholomew. And... um, He's South African, but he um, has that South African British accent. And it, so he sounds really smart, right? You know, unlike the Southern accent. And um, he moved to England and he became a British citizen. And he told me one time, the British can take any piece of meat and ruin it. <laughs> now, the point these three distinguished British gentlemen are making is that there is a natural pattern, a natural structure to the carcass in front of the butcher. And the French butcher is attentive to the structure. 
and a skillful butcher will allow himself to be constrained by the natural pattern in front of him. And, he, and in that he constrains himself, he becomes free, free to produce cuts of meat of the highest quality. So as it is with butchery, it is with creation as a whole. God has designed the universe in a way, with a grain, in an orderly way. There is a God-given grain to the universe. That's what Jesus teaches us when he's asked about divorce and he goes back to creation. He's looking at the grain. How was it set up in the beginning? There's a God-given grain, a bit like the grain in a piece of wood or marble. And we're told that a skillful sculpture, sculptor will be attentive to the grain in the marble in front of him and will allow that to discipline him. You should hear Zeke talk about how he made this amazing furniture. He gets these pieces of wood in his shop and he just stares at them. And he tries to figure out what's inside of them. Now, there is an order to reality. And the wise person will pay attention to that order. And they'll pay attention to the grain of the universe. And that's what it means to live with wisdom. It means to live according to the grain of the universe. To pay attention. A foolish person ignores the structure in creation. And thinks they can live however they please. They can chop however they please. They can cut that board however they please. They can do whatever they want. They don't have to pay attention to the board. They just have to pay attention to what they want to do to the board. So back in Matthew 19, when Jesus is asked a really touchy question about divorce and remarriage, this is how he goes about answering it. Notice how in both exchanges with the Pharisees, he quotes back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, Something interesting happens, though. Look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Because Jesus not only quotes from chapter 1 of the Bible, he changes the quote. Matthew chapter 19, notice what Jesus does, verse 4. He answered them, have you not read that he created them from the beginning? Now, that's a change. What is the first most famous line of the Bible? From the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that what it says? Now, what does it say? In the beginning. So when Jesus misquotes the Bible, perhaps he wasn't just like getting confused for a minute. From the beginning. What is he doing there? Why is he changing it? And then look again. Have you not read from the beginning? Then look again at verse 8. He does it again from the beginning. Both times when he quotes Genesis 1-1, he changes the word. Now, what's the big deal? It's this. Jesus' purpose, Jesus' point is that the purpose of things in the beginning continues until now. What was true in the beginning continues to be true from the beginning. How do I know about divorce and remarriage? Well, there was this thing in the beginning, and it's still like that. It's from the beginning. God put into creation an order, a purpose. So Jesus is asked a really controversial question. He goes back to creation, and he says that still bears upon us today. Jesus handles this tricky ethical question by looking back at the original 
purpose. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of tonight. We're going to go back and say, in the beginning, what was the purpose of sex? And let's see how that carries through today. All right. There are two key passages in the Bible with regard to sex at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. These are the two passages dealing with sex in the beginning. And what we're going to see is that as we look at these passages, there are three purposes for sex. Uniting a husband and a wife in intimacy, pleasure, and love. Number two, creating a child out of that husband and wife's uniting. And number three, pointing in a sacramental way to the love of God. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about these three purposes of sex. Uniting, procreating, making babies, and the sacramental purpose. All right. So first of all, the unitive purpose of sex. Sex unites a husband and a wife. One of the three purposes of sex from the beginning is that it forms a deep bond between a husband and wife. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does this mean? This, why is the very first description of sex in the Bible a visually graphic image? What point is God making by saying that when two people have sex, they actually become one body? Is he merely making a graphic image? Physical observation? No. In the Bible, the word flesh, when it's used in this way, it's not merely talking about a physical body. They shall become one kind of entity. It's talking about the whole person. For a husband and a wife to become one flesh is the bodily expression of a personal union at the deepest level. We're all well aware that a good marriage does not just happen when somebody says, I pronounce you husband and wife. Boy, wouldn't that be nice? Like that was the abracadabra, like Harry Potter Shazam thing, and you walked out and it was happily ever after. The worst three words ever invented to end any story, right? It's plagued the rest of us for all of our lives as we've only Disney's able to make a marriage that's happily ever after. And apparently can do it like 47 times. Good marriages don't just happen. The reality of becoming one flesh begins with wedding vows, but it takes a lifetime of work and attentiveness in order for two people to genuinely and deeply become one. And yet when the Bible first talks about this incredible possibility of two humans becoming one, this amazing thing, sex is a key part of the process. Sex is intended to have a profoundly unifying effect on two people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, Paul forbids Christians from having sex with a prostitute. Not because it's exploitative. Absolutely is. He was against that. But that's not the reason he brings up. The reason he gives for Christians to not have sex with prostitutes 
And look, Paul knew the exploitative nature of prostitution. We're going to talk a lot about that in the weeks to come. It was brutal and it was out in the open, unlike it is in America today where it's kind of hidden behind pornography and other things. But even seeing its brutal nature, Paul says this, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Flee from sexual immorality. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Glorify God in your body. There, there was this movie oh, 10 or 15 years ago, Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise and Penelope Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And Tom Cruise has a one-night stand with Cameron Diaz. And Cameron Diaz just goes bat crazy. And um, she's, she's driving a car and mad at him after they're one night stand, and she says, don't you know, whenever you have sex with somebody, your body makes a promise, whether you use words or not. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul is decrying the monstrosity of physical oneness without all the other kinds of oneness that every sex act should mirror. We might paraphrase Paul's statement this way. Don't you know that the purpose of sex is one flesh to become united to another person in every area of your life? Is that what you're trying to do with the prostitute? Are you going to merge your bank accounts? Are you going to merge family holidays? Are you going to bring total oneness into being? If not, stop having sex with her. Sex with the prostitute is wrong because every sex act is supposed to be a uniting act. Paul insists it is radically dissonant to give your body to someone to whom you will not also commit your whole life. Sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to give your entire self to another human being. It is a mode of presence to another person unlike any other. It is God's appointed way for two people reciprocally to say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. And we must not use sex to say anything else. All right, so the first purpose of sex is for a total union between two people, for two people to unite at all levels of their lives. The second purpose of sex is to make some babies. The procreative purpose. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this phrase, shall become one flesh, is a double entendre. It not only means two humans become one, it means the two, when they come together in this way, become one. They create one. Two creates one, or twins, or triplets, or quadruplets if you're using some modern fancy stuff. In other words, this one flesh is not only about the husband and wife being joined, it's also about the fact that a husband and wife produce one flesh. They produce another flesh. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's clear that part of our ability to bear God's image is our ability to create new image bearers. And this is one of the reasons sex is sacred. Human sex is sacred. Because only when humans have sex 
is a new image of God produced. That makes it different than animal sex. That makes analogies from animal sex to human sex fundamentally unparalleled. When humans have sex, we can co-create with God a new image-bearing being. In the words of the great 2nd century Christian apologist Clement of Alexandria, in doing this, we become godlike. We become like God, making images of God. When a husband and wife have sex, they share a little bit of the awesome power of the creator of the universe. So on the one hand, we serve God by co-creating with him those who bear his image. But it's more than that. This is not just about population growth. We serve God in his kingdom in marriage by producing families of disciples, children who know and love and serve the kingdom of God. So it's not just about having kids. It's about raising them well. Think about this. The church is taught from the very beginning that just as human beings are made for something outside of ourselves namely communion with God, sex is made for something outside of itself, namely participation with God in the creation of a new image bearer. Now think back to some of what we talked about in our third session, the one on sex and freedom, where we saw that mutual consent rather than marriage has become the new moral foundation, consent instead of covenant. One of the results of this along the way with the invention of the pill has been that sex has been disconnected from marriage and procreation. And so the decision to have children is now totally separate from the decision to have sex and totally separate from the decision to get married or not. We've forgotten because of the pill. We've forgotten that sex is for babies. Most people today use contraceptives. And so when an entire society regularly has sterile sex, that's what sex is with contraception. It's sterile sex. It is virtually impossible to remember this particular purpose of sex. This purpose becomes an option instead of a fundamental purpose. Instead, we tend to think of sex as primarily for pleasure or intimacy, or unity. But sex has three purposes. The united, the procreative, and as we'll see in a minute, the sacramental. This is not to say that sex is only for procreation. It's not. Every act of sex between a husband and a wife doesn't have to be open to pregnancy. A husband and wife can turn to one another in loving affection without the possibility of pregnancy because it embodies, nurtures, and enriches their complete sharing of life. A husband and wife can seek that even when children are not planned or wanted or desired in a particular season, sexual pleasure through the uniting of a husband and wife is a legitimate fulfillment of one of the three purposes of sex. Not every act of sex between a husband and wife has to be open to pregnancy. And yet, we live in a moment where there's been a shift from child-centered marriage to romance-centered marriage. And that's a shift away from God's original design. From our Hallmark cards to our divorce courts, the American view of sex has come to emphasize feelings over duties. 
career, and romance over the years of sacrificial nurture that is required of us when we have children. Our society is a society at war with children, from abortion to deliberately childless marriages. And then there's the whole way in which our culture demands that women who have babies get rid of the mom bod and get back to a body type unmarked by childbearing. That's a war against children in our culture. We need a society that helps women to be filled with humble thanks for the ways God has used children to mark their bodily life. People consider marriage, who are considering marriage, must be open to children. They must be devoted to raising children well. This is not always the case. There are definitely exceptions. But this is generally the case. And if you think you're an exception, you should have somebody else involved in that view of you. It's pretty self-serving to think you're always the exception. Let's not accidentally allow the technology of birth control to make us forget this purpose of sex. All right. Three purposes. The final purpose. The united purpose. We already covered that. Covered that the the uh, procreative purpose. Procreation. Producing children. The third purpose of sex in the Bible is the sacramental purpose. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. Paul points this out. Ephesians 5.31. Paul is writing, he says, a man shall leave, and he's quoting from Genesis again, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So, sex is unitive, that is, it is for the husband and wife. Sex is procreative, that is, it's for children. Number three, sex is sacramental, that is, it's for God. This is true in the sense that sex should be received as a good gift. But it's also true in the sense that when practiced according to the grain of the universe, sex between a husband and wife can train us to turn away from idols, from ingrown selfishness to kingdom work, to point our whole lives, our body, our soul, sex included, toward the only one who can truly satisfy the thirsty animals that we are. The God we've met in Jesus Christ, who promised those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give them will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. What what I'm saying here. And I think this is the mo- one of the most important things I'm saying in this entire series. Our sexuality, gay or straight, heterosexual sexuality, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexuality. Our sexuality, all of us, all of God's children, instructs us of our need 
for God as we experience in our sexuality a, a longing for completion in another. Whether it's a gay sexuality longing for that or a straight sexuality longing for that. That longing for completion in another is an instruction in our need for God. A Christian understanding of sexuality focuses more on affirming that that longing for completion exists regardless of marital status. Whether you're single or married, divorced, widowed, eunuch by choice, eunuch by the the actions of others, that longing for completion is fundamental to what it means to be a human. We long for the other, for completion. And that points us to the eternal, transcendent reality of truly being completed in Christ. Sexual difference and union is a type of Christ in the church. In our secular age, we think we know what sex really is. We've outgrown romance and now we know that sex is nothing more in this age than a clash of bodies and some orgasmic exchange of fluids. There is no magic, no mystery, only friction and technique and lubricants and devices. And our sex toys have become so sophisticated, we no longer need two to tango. One partner is robotic, lacking emotional needs. More than a change in laws, our biggest need in America is not a change of laws. It is a re-enchantment of sex. Scripture enables us to understand the mystery of sex, the magic of sex. It, it enables us to re-enchant sex, to understand that sex is more than biology and chemistry. The sacramental reality of sex is not about adding something to it. It's the, The sacramental reality is part of the truth of sex. The lover's enthrallment to his beloved is the Lord's enthrallment with you. Sex is a reflection of the joyous self-giving and pleasure of love within the very triune life of God. Sex is glorious not only because it reflects the joy of the Trinity, but also because it points us to the eternal delight that we will have in heaven in our loving relationships with God and with one another. And gay erotic desires point to that just as much as heterosexual erotic desires point to it. In Romans chapter 7, God tells us that the best marriages are pointers to the deep, infinitely fulfilling and final union we will have with Christ in love. No wonder, as some have said, that sex between a man and a woman or a man and another man or two women can be an embodied, out-of-body experience. It's an ecstatic, breathtaking, daring, scarcely to be imagined look at the glory that is our future. In the words of Philip Yancey, if humanity is your religion, then sex becomes an act of worship. On the other hand, if the one true God, the creator God, is the object of your religion, then romantic love becomes an unmistakable pointer, a rumor of transcendence as loud as any rumor the earth has ever heard. 
Margaret Atwood is a Canadian poet, novelist, literary critic, essayist, inventor, teacher, she, environmental activist. She's, I think, most famous today for writing the novel. Anybody know? The Handmaid's Tale. It's been made into a TV series. Um, she wrote another novel, Oryx and Crake. It's like she likes these dystopian novels. It's set in this horrific dystopian world. Lots of things have gone wrong, and sex is one of the areas in which brokenness is really playing out in the novel. The main character is Jimmy. He's in love with a woman named Oryx. Oryx has an unspeakable past, abuse, exploitation. She was cruelly used as a child by pornographers. Jimmy wants to know what happened. He keeps pressing Oryx for details. He asks, quote, it wasn't real sex, was it, in those movies? It was just acting, wasn't it? And Oryx shuts him down with the answer. Jimmy, all sex is real. Beth Felker-Jones, in her wonderful little book on sex that I've been telling you a lot about, she responds to the scene by saying, I believe this insight is exactly right. All sex is real. And so much of what goes wrong around Christian understandings of sex has to do with our failure to connect sex to reality. We fail to see that the way we do and do not have sex has to do with who God is and who we really are. Sex is sacramental. Now, I'll wrap it all up with this one thing. Psalm 119, verse 107. The psalmist prays this. Give me life according to your word. Now, that is the prayer of a faithful Christian. This is the prayer of someone who is ready to take the risk of living by the creator's design. It doesn't mean we know everything about scripture or about the challenges of life. It doesn't mean we have all the answers. What it means is we're willing to rely on scripture to receive it on its own terms, to be questioned by it in the expectation that God really does tell a better story. All right, I'm going to stop there. Mark, come to us. All right, so uh, we have people who are going to be coming around now with, with uh, little slips. And so if anyone has any questions for Aubrey, I'll just take, we'll have a few minutes of time where you can fill out your question on the slip. And then folks will come and gather those. And then we'll have a Q&A. Mark, can y'all come up with, can y'all get us started? I have a question here, and it reads, how do you realistically, practically surrender your sexuality and sexual desires to God? Mm, that is such a good question. And the best help we have on that is coming from the gay Christian community. They're, they're having to pay the biggest price on that. Um, my favorite person writing on that right now, to be honest, is Eve Tushnet, a lesbian woman in Washington, D.C., who's recovering the ancient Catholic tradition called sublimation. 
and it's a way of taking our sexual desires and not ignoring them or trying to starve ourselves from them, but of using them um, in a way that, that they are fulfilled in Christ. And so I would encourage you, she has two books. She talks about it in both of them. One is called Gay and Catholic, and the other is called Tenderness. They're both very easy to read. Men and women both should read them. Married and unmarried, because married people need to learn to do this too. And th this is one of the gifts of, of the queer culture, is that they are offering to the church recovered riches that the married people have let themselves off the hook for, but because of the price they're having to pay to obey Christ, to be celibate, they're having to recover these. So read her book is my answer. <laughs> so that's one of the ways I, I would say. Okay. Now, I just want, I, I want to say two things. When I say gay Christian, I, I, you need to do two things. One, you need to know I'm using the word gay to be much bigger than sex. When I say that I am heterosexual, that is, that is a lot, my life is, my, I'm, as a heterosexual, there is a lot more to me, my heterosexuality, than me having sex. It, it shapes and shades a lot of my life. Okay? So, in the Bible, when the Bible has these words for homosexuality that we translate as homosexual today, or sinicatoi, they're these really tricky words to translate. They're, they're talking about action. They're not talking about orientation. So the biblical words can't map directly onto our current word gay, all right? So too many straight Christians treat the word gay different than they treat the word heterosexual. They narrow gay down to sex, all right? So when I'm using it, I'm using it way more than that. The, uh, the, the historic Christian teaching, which our church holds and I'm going to teach, I've already named, is that sex only belongs within marriage between a man and a woman. So when I say gay Christian, I'm not confusing that. I, I don't want to confuse that with you. I'm using gay in a, in a bigger way than that, okay? The, the second thing um, that, yeah, I think I'll say that. Uh, I'll leave it there for now. Oh, no, here's the second thing. This is different than what our bishop and our college of bishops have officially sanctioned. They've officially encouraged us not to use that language of gay Christian. I've officially uh, asked permission and made a case, and I've been given permission to do this, um, and I'm in a continuing conversation with our bishop. And, and we sent out in a link after the first lecture uh, a link to our, our Anglican official statement on this that talks about some of the shadow sides of using gay Christian language. So, yeah. All right. All right. Here we go. Uh, if scripture should be our moral guide, how should we approach people with different scriptural interpretations and deep convictions, especially with regard to same-sex attraction? Okay. With love. With absolute love and kindness and generosity. Um, so I, I think I'm going to give out a card. I'm about to tell y'all some 
alphabet soup games, okay? There's four basic Christian views on sexuality, on homosexuality, side A, side B, side X, side Y, okay? I'll give out a card to explain all this, but side A, Christianity is affirms uh, gay sex and gay marriage, in f- that you're okay with it as a Christian. I'm not talking about a non-Christian view. Side A, Christianity, or Christians who say it's okay for gay people to get married, for gay people to have sex. Side B is, no, it's not. Um, it's not that sex only belongs within marriage between a man and a woman, but there are people that, I mean, who chose their heterosexuality? How many people who are heterosexual in this room remember the day you decided to be heterosexual? The day you picked to be attracted to the opposite sex. So just like heterosexuals don't choose their sexuality, people who are gay don't choose to be um, attracted to people of the same sex. All right. And so what side B says is it's important to me to use the word gay Christian because it names a lot more to my life than, than what I desire to do sexually. And it's an important name that, that helps me find a way in this world. Janelle and I were just at a conference with our daughter of side B Christians. We were in a room with, um, there was just a couple of straight people in the room. There was Aubrey and Janelle and a couple more. And there were hundreds of LGBTQ Christians who were absolutely committed to Jesus Christ and to the authority of Scripture and to living celibate lives. That's side B. Um, Side X is pray the gay away. The goal for a gay Christian is to become ex-gay. Um, that if you believe and you pray, you can, God will deliver you from feelings for people of your same sex, and he will deliver you into heterosexual feelings. Um, that's Exodus International. Um, it's a failed experiment. That, that, that There are still some people who hold that view. But um, side Y is... I don't think it's a good idea to use identity language. Don't say gay Christian. Instead, say something like, I'm a Christian who's same-sex attracted. That's side Y. In the side Y world, there's two groups, the nice ones and the mean ones. The mean ones say side B people are heretics. The nice ones say side B people are my friends. I disagree with them. I don't think it's wise to use that language. Inside A, gay affirming world. I'm going to give out a card, I think. that, But inside A, the gay affirming world, there are two groups. There are groups who say the Bible is the word of God. The Apostles' Creed is absolute. Jesus is the son of God. There is nothing in the Apostles' Creed I disagree with. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe in the Nicene Creed. I believe in the virgin birth, resurrection of the dead. Um, and I believe that when you read the Bible properly, it actually affirms gay sex and gay marriage. So what do you do when you bump into this Christian? I mean, I'm going to tell you about some of them in in the weeks to come who say, I love Jesus with all my heart. His Bible rules my life. His word is inerrant. Um, And here's what I think it says. And everything until they get to their interpretation is exactly what you believe, and it's your same posture. So what do we do with these Christians? We love them. We absolutely love them, and we listen to them. We're not afraid, and we're not, we're not afraid that um, because, because we don't have to be afraid because Christ is our light. Now, I spent a lot of time saying we can determine what's true in the Bible. That's my whole point at the beginning. Um, I think they're wrong. I really do. Um, 
but I can be a friend to them just like I expect some of you are a friend to me. Yeah, that's right. As long as we can all say, here's a trustworthy and true saying of which is deserving full acceptance that Christ died to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. They could be wrong. Rich Mullins had this great saying about people who are wrong. He said, they're not bad. They're just wrong. Right? So, um, yeah, uh, I, I think bad things come out of that. I would not worship at an affirming church. I couldn't have that kind of depth of fellowship, but I could have friendship and love with them. Um, does that answer the question? Who asked? <laughs> I have a, a follow-up to that question, and I have my phone because I wrote this down. This is my question. <laughs> I told Joanna I was going to bring up some blank cards and act like a bunch of people asked it, but it's my question. <laughs> So following up with that about being able to love Christians who we disagree with on this issue, it does seem like this issue has been where a lot of denominations have split. This is this issue more than something like infant baptism where we say, okay, I see what you're saying in scripture. I disagree. We do infant baptism. You do believer's baptism. That doesn't seem to be as much of a, something that you sit down with your friend at the dinner table and say, we disagree on this. You know, people kind of say, okay, as Christians, you believe this, I believe this. But it seems like with homosexuality, this is a big one where we've said we can't have unity amongst churches in this. Should it be that much of an issue when we think denominationally or even amongst Christians, should, should it be that much more of a dividing line? Does that make sense? It does. And, and with all due respect, Callie, people did say, I'm not going to eat with you. In fact, I'm going to torture you because you baptize babies or don't baptize babies. You're speaking historically? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, some major blood has been spilled. So this is only today we're like, eh, baptism, mm-hmm. sex, you know, big deal. So um, I do think it's a, a very significant issue. I, and I do. I, I, um, I think the Anglican Church in North America and so many other churches are absolutely right to be very clear on this. Because I don't think it's a minor mistake with side A is doing. Um, there are two, two sets of victims on this issue in our churches. LGBTQ. So I met um, Tyler this weekend. Tyler grew up um, in a very conservative fundamentalist Baptist world went to a very famous fundamentalist Baptist college named after a famous man with alliterating first and last names. (laughs) Did not know side B was an option. No idea. Was in a very conservative small town space. The only options he knew was um, total denial or dive in with both feet. So he did. Um, and I just met so many people this weekend whose side B has given them a, a great space to be themselves. Now, here's the deal. In the culture wars, side B Christians were the victims. 
Because in the culture war, if it is clear you're gay, think the stereotypical flamboyant gay man. Modern family, Cameron, hands, you know. To say to, you know, to say, to say to the gay man who likes sparkles and flamboyancy and could not give a care about hunting and sports. In the culture war, that, that man got crucified. If he wanted to follow Jesus, he had no place in the affirming church because he's self-hating and repressing by being celibate. And he had no place in the conservative church because he needs to pray that gay out of him. So, so many gay Christians got crushed in the culture war because they were in no man's land. There's another set of victims. The other set of victims are the children in our public school systems today, where there's a radical trans agenda that is indoctrinating elementary school age children. Every... Every person I spoke, every LGBTQ person I've spoke to and asked about that is like, that is crazy. What's going on with small children before they have like agency to think through these issues? That's a whole nother set of victims. And unfortunately, when churches weigh down on the culture war, the gay Christian side, B Christians, they continue to live in no man's land. When a church kind of moves toward them and doesn't help us figure out how to deal with the radical ideology that's happening, we're denying this other set of victims. This is a super complicated place, but we have to go there. We have to. We have to because of the number of suicides among LGBTQ people, because of the number of suicides among LGBTQ Christian people. We have to go there. And it is so important. This is what I said in my very first lecture. There is very few things in life that touch you as deeply as sex, as as evidenced by the fact of our, our, our response to rape. Sex is very serious. And we've got to do the work to go all the way into that super complicated place to figure out how to be orthodox and welcoming without in any way um, um, messing up either one of those. And the culture war let us off the hook. We said we loved gay people, but in the five love languages, we weren't speaking the the language of love that LGBTQ people hear. So look, if I'm saying to my wife, I love you by serving her, but her um, love language is gifts, I can't get mad at her for not for thinking I don't love her. I mean, if Gary Chapman taught us anything, he taught me to become love language fluent, you know, and to to figure out her love language and express love to her in that way. And what we learned in the culture war from the LGBTQ community that's committed to celibacy, absolutely committed to it, what we learned is that we weren't speaking their love language. That's on us. So we've got to get this right for lots of those kind of reasons. Can I briefly follow yeah, up just please. to clarify again? I'm sorry, this is selfishly my question again. No, no, but if I got off track. No, me. no, not at all. I, it did answer the question. I guess just you mentioned you would not worship at an, an affirming church, a side A church. 
so you would say, I, I, can't, I can't worship there because I feel like scripturally it's just too off track, but I would worship at a church that's doing believer's baptism because I say, scripturally, I see more room there, and I don't see room for side A. You're such a hypocrite. <laughs> you came up here all nice, <laughs> like you weren't going to catch me in that kind of double, uh, double speak. Yeah, I should think through that. That's a good point. I could be a member. Or worship. Just wor- No, that's a really good point. I need to think that through because I could, you know, in another setting, in another culture, in another space, I could be a member of a church that was wrong on baptism. Like Mark Tisa Nation's church, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think that their mistake on baptism backs into heresy. Okay. Okay. Backs gotcha. into something that's going to erode the core of Christianity. Okay. I think that, I think, I think, well, especially for the one, there's two side A groups. One side A group says, I think the Bible says this, and I submit to the Bible. It's the inerrant word of God. There's another side A group that just says, ah, Paul, he was a misogynist. We, so there, the side A world that stands in authority over Scripture and critique Scripture, I, I couldn't. It would, that would be... So difficult for me. Yeah. The side A world who, who we share that commitment to scripture, mm-hmm. I could have much, I could have fellowship with that world and I could vigorously argue with them. So I don't know if that helps or that it just sense. further it exposes does, yeah. my, I need to think that through. A That's a great question. question. Okay. okay. Thank We've you. gone over, we're going to go for three more minutes and then. So a couple questions about what you said about how all longing, all longing points to Christ, both straight and gay, erotic desire points to God. Um, and so, yeah, just questions about um, how can that be if, if gay desire goes against the grain of the created order? Is it a perversion? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I talked about the erotic longing to be completed in another. So the heterosexual sexual desire is contaminated a lot, right? Mm-hmm. I want to be completed in you, but I really want to use you. So even when I talk about the heterosexual, there's going to be parts of that that are purged. But at its core, this longing to be completed in another is meant in Scripture to um, point us to the fact that Christ alone can do that and will do that. That all, I think what, as I'm walking in deep relationship with with gay people, part of what I'm saying to some of them, my friends, is look to your longings and find within them that for which you can give thanks. And you can see is leading you to God. And that's what I would do with heterosexual people talking about intense sexual longing. So I think that's kind of the way. Thanks. Okay. Wow, it feels like we're on fragile ice right now, doesn't it? Is there one more? Or is there one from the audience that didn't get asked and you're just dying? You're just so frustrated with these yahoos for ignoring your question. Who are you pointing at? Who are you pointing at? They're all pointing at Jeremy. Okay, so in my experience, most people that 
Hold on, come to the microphone so all the people who are live streaming and who will follow this in the days to come can see you. (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy Shepard lives on College (laughs) Avenue. That's good. Um, Okay, so in my experience uh, with people in the LGBTQ community, the idea of even contemplating submitting to the Christian sexual ethic is a non-starter. So that's the hardest part. I'm seeing how small this how small this population is and then how much friendly fire they're going to get from both sides to ever say, I am gay and I am a Christian. Yeah, that's very good. Absolutely. Uh, three to six percent of the population of the latest um, estimation of who are LGBTQ in the United States and the percentage of that that are side B is teeny tiny. So my Lord Jesus teaches me to leave the 99 and even for one. And um, I've found that side B opens up a space that I think can grow. Uh, There is serious disfigurement that occurs in the closet. And for many gay people, the biggest sin they struggle with is not sex. It's other things that breed in secrecy. I mean, what does loneliness and secrecy do to you? And so we have got to become churches where there can be rows of LGBTQ people. All right. So with regard to the non-Christian community who says, yeah, they get accused of that self-hatred and that's repression. I think the only way to convince the non-Christian community that celibate gay Christianity is not self-hatred is to have a critical mass of celibate gay Christians who can say, you don't know what you're talking about. If you want me to listen to your experience, you listen to my experience. I heard a gay man say this weekend who's living this life, he just went on and on about the fullness of his life And he was an intelligent, articulate man who's been living this way for a long time. And we've got to listen to him. And I I want to say to the the gay community who thinks that the gay Christian community is self-hating and repressing, they need to be told, if you want to be listened to, then you need to listen. And and don't just presume. And and, and see, this is an idol of sex. Um, Are you going to say that your gay friend in a wheelchair paralyzed can't be a fully human? I mean, there's all kinds of moves, but the strongest move is if there's a critical mass of gay Christians who are saying with their lives, this is a plausible way of life. Does that that answer? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. All right, I'm going to show you two books. So um, we're going to talk more specifically about those issues in weeks to come. So the books tonight are not about those things. The books tonight I want to talk about are two books about marriage. Um, marriage. So, <laughs> one, the easy-to-read one by Christopher Ash, Married for God, Making Your Marriage the Best It Can Be. These are the two books I know that don't make the mistake of making romance the center of marriage. Part of marriage, but not the center. Christopher Ashe, Married for God. And then Christopher Ashe's big book with lots of footnotes, 
tinier print, takes longer to read, covers the same thing if you're just that, if you're just too nerdy for this. Um, and you look down at the bottom shelf and you can't listen to pop because you only like classical music, then here you go. Christopher Ashe, Marriage, Sex, and the Service of God. I cannot recommend these books enough. And I just, yeah, I'll stop there. Um, I've got two copies of my manuscript, and anybody who wants them is welcome to them. We'll put the manuscripts up online later this week. I'll have Q&A in my office on Wednesday at 3 o'clock for anybody. We have tea and cookies for anybody who wants to come and join us. And I know that some of these things I'm saying are, they have a whiplash effect. Let's talk about them. All right. The Lord bless you. Adios.